So we talk about Peter. What happened in Peter's life? What, what is the whole issue about transformation all about? Well, transformation, really, it's, it's about change. Anybody here like change? I don't get a whole lot of nods there. Let me tell you something. All of us love change when it's up to us to decide what the change is. However, if somebody is telling you, you need to change your ways, dude, you're not so happy about that. No, we don't, we don't care for that. But transformation is all about change. And so God's desire is that we would be changed. When we come to Christ for salvation, and he begins to reside in our hearts, the transformation, the change begins to take place. So when I come to a saving knowledge of Christ, according to Ephesians 1.13, I am indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. He comes upon me right at that point. People say, really? Go to Ephesians 4.30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, wherein you have been sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in your life. And so when we come to Christ thinking that all I need is a one-way ticket to heaven, and that exempts me from hell, and I can live my life on my terms, you are sadly mistaken. And you have an incorrect view of salvation. So many people think, I can accept Christ, I get my one-way ticket to heaven, I don't go to hell, and as a result, I can live life on my own terms. That's wrong. But a lot of people out there are teaching it. They're teaching it. See, when God enters into your life, He is an active agent of change. His desire is that you would be conformed to the very likeness of His Son according to Romans 8.29. He says that He wants you to be conformed to His very image. He wants you to become more and more like Christ in character. So when you come to Christ, it's not about the one-way ticket to heaven. It's about God's going to make a whole new person out of you. Are you open to change? Truth is, some of us really aren't. We don't want to go to hell. But do I really have to change everything? And the truth is, uh, yes. But I like kind of the way I am. Well... If God's residing in your heart, He's going to make you uncomfortable with some of the things in your life that really don't measure up. We've been looking at life, the life of Peter through his, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, his life radically changes through that process. And what accentuates the process of change in his life is the Holy Spirit. See, in John 20, 21 and verse 22 Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is prior to Pentecost. And with that, it says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Did you hear me? Because a lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit only came on them at Pentecost. No, wrong. Jesus breathed on them prior to Pentecost and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And notice... Before God sends you into ministry, He always enables you to do ministry. So when God calls us into service again, He gives us enablement to get the job done. He says, I'm calling you to follow me, and when I call you to follow me, I'm going to enable you through the Holy Spirit of God to do what needs to be done. 
So Peter and the disciples are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God prior to Pentecost. This, again, was not about experience, but strengthening for ministry. Because sometimes people say, well, I, I'd like to have that experience of the Holy Spirit, and I just want to have that real good feeling. That's a great. <clears throat> you don't have a biblical basis for it, though. Because all throughout Scripture, whether you're talking about Old Testament or New Testament, whenever the Holy Spirit of God came upon a man or woman, it was always to enable them to serve God in a greater way. It's not about experience. It's about enablement to serve God in a greater way. John 14, verse 15. Jesus was talking to the disciples prior to Pentecost. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That word counselor is parakletos in the Greek. And the idea is, in the Greek, one of the same kind. One like me. And when he comes, he says, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. See, the role of the, role of the Holy Spirit in changing lives is never to be underestimated. In Acts 2, <clears throat> verses 1 to 4, this is when Peter gets up and he presents the gospel. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place because they were told to stay until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And suddenly a sound of the holy of a blowing violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, glossalia, languages, as the Spirit enabled them. That's what the Greek teaches us. In Acts 2.11, it says, we hear them, and then the people, are, as they listen to these guys who are overcome by the Holy Spirit of God, he said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They could understand what was being said. It was not gibberish, but they could clearly understand as a result of the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we can hear them speaking the gospel, the good news, so we can understand it. And then chapter 2, verse 14, says that Peter stood up with the eleven and he addressed the crowd under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. What was happening? God was in the business of transforming Peter's life. There had been the denial. There had been the restoration. Now we're beginning to see transformation. See, on that day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at that time of prayer about three in the afternoon. And we're jumping now to Acts 3. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he's put every day to beg from those who are going into the temple courts. We saw Peter and John about to enter. He asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Here's Peter's words. Silver or gold I do not have, what I do have I, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taken by the right hand, he helped them up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, then he went with them in the temple courts, walking, jumping, praising God. Good night, dancing in the temple. Even hard for some Baptists to take. But when all the people saw him walking, 
and dancing and praising God. They recognized him as the man who used to sit there begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here are Peter and John, who just healed a beggar who had been laid for 40 years. He's dancing, he's praising God for what's happened. And this provides Peter and John a fantastic opportunity to present the gospel. And again, whether they're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. They've seen what Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. And the thing that's really impacted is that he is risen. He is risen. And they proclaim that all around. The fact that he is risen from the dead. Trouble is word got around to the, quote, religious group, the Sadducees. In Acts 4, if you've got your Bibles, verses 1 through 3, it says, The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Uh, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them into jail until the next day. So now the prophecy that Christ gave, you're going to go to jail on my behalf, was now happening. Notice healing led to preaching, which led to persecution. The persecution came from the religious establishment, the Jewish leaders, at the same, just as the case of Jesus Christ. Peter and John hopefully were not surprised, for Jesus had taught them, remember the word I said to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Because when you live for Christ, expect persecution. We don't hear that today in North America, do we? We don't hear about when I put my faith and trust in Christ, expect you're going to be challenged. Expect you're going to be tested. Expect you're going to be persecuted. You're a Christian. Fantastic. But I tell you, you don't have to watch the news too much to realize that the church of Jesus Christ is beginning to go undergo attack. We see it in the Middle East. We see it in China. We can see it in other countries of the world. But folks, it's happening in North America too. Because what we hold and avow to as the inspired authoritative word of God is a guide for how we live and what we teach and what we believe is under attack right now in Canada. I can go and preach a whole message on that. Don't be surprised. It said to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And disciples were told by Christ, when you're a Christian, you will be challenged. You will be persecuted. Peter the Nair had become Peter the Proclaimer and in fact passed along a similar warning to every Christian. As a follower of Christ, we need to expect persecution and don't be surprised or be caught off guard when it happens to you. And so the Sadducees at that day were not so sad, you see. But they were the religious and political liberals of the day. They made up most of the priests, and the primary concerns were for the operation of the temple and the interpretation of law. They were the ruling class of religious leaders in their day. There are fewer in number than their major rivals, the Pharisees. Had more the Pharisees had more influence on the people. But the Sadducees were more influential. The high priests of that day were all taken from the Sadducees. And the, the Sadducees presided over the Sanhedrin, which was a council of Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the ruling elect of the religious leaders in that day. 
The irony is that while they were the dominant religious force in Israel, they were worldly-minded, they were materialistic, and they were secularists with little interest in religion. They generally were against any opposition to Rome in fear that it would jeopardize their political position and wealth. They wanted to make sure that we're in kudos with the government. As long as we do what we want, we're going to be in charge. The Romans like us being in charge, and we're more considered with our position and our authority. So it's not merely, so there was a sense also with the Sadducees that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. You'll find that a little later on. And so when Peter and John went around starting to preach dogmatically about the resurrection of Jesus, they're getting upset. We don't believe in this. Why were they getting upset? It says that because they were teaching and proclaiming, refers back to Acts 3, Peter's sermon. They were annoyed at the very fact they were teaching for they were unlearned, unschooled, former Galilean fishermen. They had no official rabbinical teaching. They would not gone to a Bible college or seminary. They had no connection with the religious establishment, no authorization to speak publicly, although there was no rule that would forbid them from speaking out on any issue. And they got really upset with these guys because they were proclaiming something that went against what they felt was truth. And so they seized Peter and John. It does not suggest in Scripture a gentle grasp, but they roughly handily grabbed onto these guys and threw them into the temple prison for what they were doing. Acts 4.21 also mentions further threats, which implies prior threats, so it was very likely they were threatened at the time of their arrest. The point is that the entire atmosphere, manner of treatment was evaluated to make them afraid, to be dominated, to challenge them to shut up. You can mark it down that our adversary, the Satan, traffics and specializes in fear. But God always trumps Satan's fear with faith. So they put them into jail. Was this really a legally uh, uh, justified arrest? It really doesn't seem to be the case. But what you need to know is this, that when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon a man or woman, there is a boldness, not fear, a boldness to proclaim what God has done in our lives. Okay, here's a question to you then. Why are you so afraid to share the good news of Christ with people around you? Huh? Because when I talk to people about the importance of sharing the good news of Christ, some of the challenges I hear is that, well, I, I'm kind of, I, don't, I really don't know how to do that. What's another issue I hear coming up? Well, I don't want to be intimidated. I don't want to be judged. If they're honest... I'm afraid. But again, I said this message was about the transformation of Peter, didn't I? Do you remember what Peter was like at the judgment hall? He said, you're one of his followers, aren't you? He says, no, I don't know the man. And now we see the boldness, almost dogmatism of Peter as the Holy Spirit has come upon him that man, he can't help but speak of what God's doing in his life. There is boldness because he's been filled with the Spirit of God. That boldness is seen by everyone around. 
So persecution does not prevent the spread of the word. Peter and John were imprisoned. But if you go to Acts 4, verse 4, many who heard the message that they shared believed. And the number of men who professed to know Christ grew to 5,000 because of the bold, effective proclamation of God's word. You know what I also noticed too? I notice when people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know, they, they have an experience where they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and they, they understand that they've been saved. There's a genuine boldness in their lives to start telling everybody about what's going on in their lives. Which sometimes put of us, some of us who've known Christ a long time to shame because they're so excited about what God's doing. I gotta tell everybody, man, it's just really great. And you're going like, oh, they'll slow down eventually. They'll, they'll get the message. Somebody will whack them on the side of the head say, and challenge them what they're believing on. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and He's transforming our lives, we can't help but speak of what He's doing. See, remember the persecution always strengthens and purifies the church. A lot of times people say, you know what? How are we shutting the church up? But we'll just start persecuting them. We'll just start making life miserable for them. But somehow when that happens, the church gets a backbone, starts to have confidence in God. They start standing up and start standing for what they believe. So when I say that in Canada today, that we're being challenged like never before in areas of our biblical beliefs, it's time for the church to stand up and say, we hold to the authority of God's word and we will live it no matter what. But the test is coming. And so it strengthens the church. And when unbelievers see the strength and boldness of believers who put their faith in Christ and men dwelt by the Spirit of God, they go like, hey, they've got the real deal. I want to believe in something that's true. I want to believe in something that changes somebody's life. Acts 4, 5, and 6, we read this. The next day, the rulers, the elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. And Jesus mocked trials. The first trial was held before Annas, followed by Caiaphas. So the same men that condemned Jesus to death, now Peter and John standing in front of them. You think Peter would have recognized, hey, those are the same dudes that spat and beat upon Jesus? You bet. How interesting that these two are named again in the setting of the trial, a mock trial that Peter and John had really done nothing illegal, and the man who had been healed by Peter and John was standing beside Peter and John. They're having an examination. You can imagine the reaction of Annas and Caiaphas to the news, which then undoubtedly hurt from other sources, but now from the mouth of men who had intimately been with Jesus, He's alive! The resurrection is real! And they're like, oh, great. We thought we'd shut him up. The men gathered to interrogate Peter and John were who's who's of the most powerful and prominent religious leaders in that day. These men knew the Old Testament scriptures in painstaking detail. They were completely immersed in the world of religious ritual. They could argue with theology for days and probably weeks on end. The only problem is they were all spiritually lost. God in the person of Jesus Christ had been in their very presence and they didn't get it and they missed the message. Worse than that, the Life Aid Application Bible says they had killed him 
And now they're trying, blindly trying to silence the messengers of Christ. You can't keep a good man down. You can't keep the gospel down, my friend. In Acts 4, verse 7, it says, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question, By what power or by what name did you do this? Like, really? They didn't know? Homer Kent comments on this. The Sanhedrin were acting within its jurisdiction when it examined and convened to actually check up on Peter and John. The Mosaic Law was specified that whenever someone performed a miracle and used it as a basis for teaching, he was to be examined, and if the teaching was used to lead men away from the God of their fathers, the nation was responsible to stone them, according to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, 1 through to 5. So they were all well within their means. On the other hand, if the message was doctrinally sound, the miracle worker was to be accepted as coming with a message from God. Acts 4, 8 and 12. Then Peter filled, now notice this again, they always put this emphasis here. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, or being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Do you think they kind of rubbed a little salt in their wounds? But this is not the same Peter back who denied Christ three times, is it? What's changed, folks? What's changed? Well, he said he knew the Lord. What, what's changed between then and now? Holy Spirit working through the man in a bigger way. And then he goes on to say, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation, he says in 4.12, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. Uh, that's a key, good verse to memorize, my friend. Because Peter's telling it like it is. He said, you know what? There's salvation only in who? Jesus Christ alone. It was interesting, I saw different religious leaders that were actually interviewed. I'm not going to name names. They were interviewed by Larry King and other individuals as to, is Jesus Christ really the only way? And each one of them waffled on national TV and not asserting that Jesus Christ was the only way. And yet they professed to be Christians. When it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to him, it's interesting in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, the first Greek word that comes up is that which is significant as it shows the first effects of being filled and controlled by the Spirit of God is that it speaks of, hear me loud and clear, controlled speech. The first mark and evidence of when the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in your life is what comes out of here. All throughout the book of Acts, it's just not controlled speech, but it's bold speech. Every time they got up to speak about Christ, there was this boldness in them. Peter's yielded spirit and obedient walk allowed the spirit to exert his influence and power in and through Peter. Because Peter says, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. And he says, what? Go feed my sheep. There's no emotional, high, mystical filling associated with Peter's filling. 
Peter did not pray to him be filled. He just allowed God to work through him in a greater way. Say, Lord, I submit, I yield, do your thing in me. He simply walked in a manner worthy of the Lord. John MacArthur says this, all Christian ministry and witness depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit within our lives. So what's the difference in Peter's life? He's standing in the same council that condemned or rejected Christ. He stood there, watched it happen, swore and cursed he didn't know Christ. Now he's before the powerful body of men, boldly reminding them that they crucified Christ. There's this just fantastic boldness. If he had been fearful, he would only said what he thought was necessary to secure his release. But he said he boldly witnesses and calls them basically murderers. Again, what makes the difference? When we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in our lives. Wow! What a change! How does that work in your life and mine? How are we filled with the Spirit? In Ephesians 5.18, Paul commands us not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled. Well, number one, the Word of God was authored by the Holy Spirit as he spoke to men. And so Numa, the Spirit, came upon men, and they wrote as being led by the Holy Spirit of God. So when we spend time in God's Word, it controls and influences our behavior. Show, you, show me a man or woman not walking with Christ, and I can tell you the first thing. They're not men and women of the Word. Is it really? Yeah. Because what you spend your time studying and taking in is what is going to control and influence your life, my friend. You want to watch everything else on TV? You want to watch, read all the other stuff? That's what's going to influence and control your life. Just as a drunk is under the influence and control of alcohol, so a spirit man is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. That means I willingly yield my life to God. I want to study your word. And by your grace, I want to allow the word of God to have full control of my life every single day so that in every circumstance people will see Christ in and through my life that I will be a living example of what it means to be a Christian and that's a challenge that's the meaning of being filled with the Holy Spirit assuming you're a believer the main requirement for being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be cleansed from all sin and to be yielded to him every day that means saying Lord, I submit to your leadership every day. Lord, I am yielding my life. Lord, you are in charge. I am not. A spirit-controlled person is not self-willed, but is submissive to whatever God says he wants in his life. Is that a challenge? It's huge. Because the old man, the old nature, will fight tooth and nail to get its own way in your life every single day. See, also being filled by the Spirit implies a moment-by-moment dependence on the Spirit pictured in the metaphor in Galatians 5, 6. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says the Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify God in John 16, 14. A person filled with the Spirit will seek, I want to glorify God in everything I do, in my relationships, In my actions, everything I do, Lord, I want to be completely submissive to what you want in my life. Is that easy? No, it's not. How do I do that? By meditating upon God's word daily. Because how am I going to learn to follow God 
if I don't spend time reading the Word of God as it applies to my life. You're struggling in your Christian walk? It's probably because you're not spending time in the Word. And the other thing, too, is when you read the Word of God, here, here's, the, here's the tough part. When you're spending time, spending time in God's Word, reading it daily, you need to say, as you open God's Word and you read it, say, Lord, what is in this passage that I need to apply to my life and ask you to work in my life on? Because you read through the Word of God, the Word of God says that the Holy Spirit of God will convict you of sin in your life. So, hey, there's something that's not measuring up here. You need to kind of, you know, commit that to, to the Lord. And when you commit your life on a daily basis, and I mean every single day of your life, and say, God, I want you to work in my life. I want you to work in my life. Will he do it? You bet. But you've got to hear his word speak to your heart. It's only when we yield to the Holy Spirit and let him control the inner man that we succeed in living for the glory of God. That means feeding the inner man the word of God, praying, worshiping, keeping clean, exercising the senses by living obedience. And Peter goes on in the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel in bold is not fear. He says that salvation is found in nobody else. He, he tells it clear. He says there's no other ways. He's clear. And yet, as he does that, the good news, as he says, is that Christ has come to take our place of punishment by dying on the cross so that we in turn might live unto God every single day. Is that, again, an easy message? The answer is, no, it's not. It's no, it's not. And so you and I are faced with a choice every day as to how we are going to live our lives. I'm going to live it life on my terms. I'm going to live my life on God's terms. But you know what's unique about this whole passage? <laughs> One of my favorite passage verses here is Acts 4.13. I remember an evangelist preaching on this probably back in the... Uh, I would say mid-70s. He, he said his, his message title for Ephesians, I mean for Acts 4, 13 was this, have you got the real thing? You're going on the Coca-Cola label. What's 4.13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I like that. Uh, the old King James says they were that they were ignorant men. <laughs> that has a whole different connotation in today's language. But here it is, that when God the Holy Spirit comes upon a man, regardless of education, background, whatever, people saw the difference. And you know what they attributed the difference in these men's lives were? They had spent time with Jesus because they're acting like him and talking like him. Let me submit to you that when you and I spend time in the presence of God, daily in prayer, allowing our lives to be yielded to his leadership, we begin to act like him. We begin to talk like him. We begin to live like him. And the thing is, the only thing they could attribute to this change was this phrase. They had been with Jesus. Here's my question. How much time have you spent with Jesus? The boldness did not come from training, didn't come from school, didn't come from college. What a wonderful compliment for people to recognize that we're like Jesus because we've been like him. If we're going to be like Jesus, we're told to be bold witnesses. 
when we confront religious hypocrisy or false doctrine. We won't be mean or rude. We'll have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, coming through our lives. We'll have spent enough time with Jesus to learn from him the importance of speaking God's truth rather than compromising God's truth. We'll fear God more than we would fear the social customs or what the world is going to say. What was the response again? Acts 4.14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, <laughs> living proof, says they could say what? Nothing. There's the evidence. What are they going to say? I've got to say I love that picture. They're fully worried. been a cripple at the beautiful gate for 40 years. There he stands totally healed. They're going like, When God changes a life and the world looks on, what are they going to say? They can't say anything. What are they going to attribute it to? The fact he was standing was living proof of the miracle. There's power in the name of Jesus. What do we say? What's our conclusion here? Well, let me read this to you. It always encourages me. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. It says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Amen? So don't tell me about the stuff in your life, the crud in your life, or why you can't do this or why you can't do that. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 qualifies you as someone that God can use. So are you being filled by the Spirit? Are you being transformed? You know the word transformed, transform, uh, transform I in the Greek, is the idea of being changed from the inside out. So when God does a work in your heart, He begins to change the way you think, the way you act. He changes from the inside out. When it says don't be conformed to the world in Romans 12 too, the idea is that the world wants to squeeze you on the outside to conform to what it wants. But God says, I work from the inside and change from the inside out. Would you this day submit to Jesus Christ and allow him to transform your life? Many of you, you, know, many of you have already said, yeah, I, I gave my life to Christ. Well, where are you at now? Really, where are you at? Maybe you've done this before, but you know you're not where you should be. And that means it's time to say, Lord, have your way in my life. Because, Lord, yours is the only way. Yours is the best way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Father God, we see the transformation in Peter's life. We say, wow, that's amazing. But, Father, for those who have professed to know you, who put our faith and trust in you, Lord, you can do the same thing in our lives. If only we ask. If only we submit and we say, Lord, cleanse me from my sin. 
Lord, help me to stop hanging on to the things that the world says are important. Help me to hang on to your word. Help me to follow you fully. And if that's your heart's desire, just tell God right now where you're seated that you want to do this. I don't care if you've done it before, neither does God. God says, just renew that commitment with me, will you? Just say, yeah. Lord, I will follow you because I want to be transformed. I want to have that spirit boldness in my life that people can see Christ through my life that I might just walk in fellowship and harmony with you, O oh God. Lord, I don't want to have a, a rebel heart that wants to do its own thing. I want to have a heart that follows after you fully. Lord, that's my desire. My friend, if that's your desire, you committed your life to him right now where you're seated. You want to come forward while the girls are going to be singing the last song? I'll just come to the front. I'll pray with you. You can have a seat at the pew. You need to make that public. You want to do that? You come forward. As God speaks to your heart, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.